everyone. This is Veronica Kirilenko of the New American Magazine. We're in Bath, UK, covering the Better Way Conference, hosted and organized by the World Council for Health. And here with us today, we have a very exciting guest, James Corbatz, an award-winning investigative journalist, writer, and producer and host of the Corbatz Report. Uh, James, it's so good to see you. Uh, I would like to ask you first this. You've been researching and investigating the emergence of the biosecurity state and weaponization of healthcare uh, for at least a couple of decades, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, please tell us about your professional interest in this subject. So it started back in the later part of the 2000s, so 2008, 2009. I started investigating biosecurity in medical martial law and other such terms that were not very popular at that time. Not a lot of people knew about them, but I saw in the wake of the 2001 not only, of course, 9-11, but the anthrax attacks, that uh, there was a weaponization of the biosecurity state that was taking place. And the laying into law, the legislative framework for medical martial law, medical lockdowns, quarantines, forced inoculations, all of that was being put into place methodically through a legislative process. Um, in the United States specifically, but of course it was happening all over the world. And I was trying to ring the alarm bell about it at the time. Um, and. So when I saw the development in 2014, Ebola, 2015, 16, Zika, these types of scares that were being raised by the World Health Organization um, over and over the public health emergency of international concern that they declared, I, I again, was trying to raise the, uh, alarms about that. It wasn't until 2020 that I think they actually pulled the trigger on that and really started going for the biosecurity statement. And what alarmed you? Uh, it, it was... It was the, the, the laying of the infrastructure that I saw that was taking place. So for example, in 2009 with the swine flu pandemic, which actually turned out to be a less deadly flu pandemic than regular, um, the regular flu season, uh, but nonetheless was hyped up to be an incredible important thing that we had to start shutting down. I was teaching schools in, at schools in Japan at that time. They were literally shutting down schools because they were afraid the children were going to get swine flu and all of this. They were, of course, hyping the vaccines. Of course, everyone had to get the flu shot um, for the swine flu at that time. And so when it started to come out um, as the Council for Europe and uh, uh, the British Medical Journal, I believe it was, um, conducted a special investigation after the fact and discovered that indeed, yes, most of the people who were on the advisory board of the World Health Organization Advisory Council that advised them to declare this public health emergency of international concern for the swine flu, most of them um, had ties to the very pharmaceutical manufacturers who then directly benefited from that declaration by getting all of the contracts for the, for, of course, vaccines, Tamiflu, all of these types of pharmaceutical interventions that were predicated on that. So I saw this was a swindle that was happening over and over. And I also saw the, the laying of the, uh, the Model Health State Emergency Powers Act, which had been, um, again, formulated in the wake of the anthrax um, attacks and then passed in individual states all around the US. Um, uh, the majority of states now have passed some version of that legislation that literally allows governors to become essentially medical martial law dictators. Mm -hmm. So this was very concerning, and I knew that uh, the development of bioweapons, all of this was happening in the background, and unfortunately, I foresaw something like what happened in the past few years happening. The thing that really surprised me about it was how much people accepted what happened, how quickly people just accepted the idea of lockdowns. 
Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, so what's the underlying agenda of these developments? Because obviously it's very, it's a hard tax with such a complicated, sophisticated architecture in place, lots of money involved. So uh, they would say that, well, our environment breeds more and more deadly pathogens because of the climate change uh, we're being told right now, or that we as the good guys need to be on top of uh, biosecurity and develop this kinds of measures, countermeasures to protect our populations from bioterrorism. So do you see other forces and motives in play? Absolutely. So the idea is to declare essentially emergencies uh, of various sorts to justify things that could never be justified in times of non-emergency. And obviously the, the events of 9-11 were the terrorist emergency which allowed for the formation of the Homeland Security complex. The uh, events of the past few years are the justification, or at least supposedly the justification, for the laying of the biosecurity infrastructure. Next, we're going to have the climate emergency. Mm -hmm. And all of these emergencies are going to merge in various ways. Um, Bioterrorism, of course, can be merged quite easily, and we've seen the, the specter of that being raised. Uh, also, the climate emergency and climate lockdowns, and all of these ideas start to merge into one thing. It, it, it reveals, I think, what this is really about, which of course is not about protecting public or promoting actual health. It's about finding ways to institute more and more centralized control over humanity. And the ultimate, I think, where this is ultimately heading, although it sounds crazy and science fiction-esque, I think this really is heading towards some sort of transhumanist push for more and more um, uh, mechanical interventions in our bodies of biomedical nature. Um, eventually, the brain chip and the merging of humanity with machines is, I think, the, the goal that is being driven towards. One of the hottest topics of this conference is uh, the protection of individual and national sovereignty in context of the WHO's attempts to expand its powers. Um, so what are the key legal developments that people need to be aware of? Uh, I, I think people need to understand, um, at first and foremost right now, with regards to the, the World Health Organization and what it is pushing, um, there, is, there are two parallel processes that are happening right now. One is a push for a, uh, a treaty of some sort, although they won't call it a treaty because treaties have to be ratified by various member states and what have you. They're going to call it a convention or an agreement of some sort, which will then be automatically implemented in every WHO member state, which is basically the entire world. Um, at the same time, they're also amending the International Health Regulations, which are, is a legal document that is part of the World Health Organization. It's been passed in and amended in multiple forms over the years, but the latest iteration was in 2005, after SARS Part 1, the original scare, back in 2003, there was a push to amend the international health regulations to make them more powerful, more effective, more teeth, essentially. And that's what created the concept of the public health emergency of international concern, which is this declaration that the World Health Organization um, Director General can make unilaterally, actually, as it turns out. Um, in fact, we saw that with monkeypox, the monkeypox scare last year. Um, the advisory council was actually majority against advising um, the Director General to declare a public health emergency over that. He declared it anyway. So um, what that does is institute a lot of this the um, framework for the, the biosecurity state that we've been talking about. Um, they are now attempting to amend those international health regulations to make them even more binding, even more strict on various 
um, national um, governments to give World Health Organization more power to bring in what Bill Gates has talked called pandemic firefighting teams that will be able to go into any spot where there seems to be something developing and start the lockdowns, inoculations, whatever they need to do. So this is the, the vision that we're moving towards. It's happening in this parallel process that's happening behind, mostly behind closed doors. There's some fig leaf of some public participation, but that doesn't mean anything. They don't have to actually implement anything that the public says. These are unelected officials that have incredible control over people's lives, as we've seen in the past few years. Most people don't even know this process is happening. And even if and when they do discover that it's happening, there is very, very, very little recourse for the average person involved in this. Essentially, if your country is a member of the World Health Organization, which basically every state on the planet is, you will automatically be subject to these provisions once they are passed, unless your government puts specifically into writing, no, we object to this and we are not going to follow this. But not every country is on board with this. Uh, no, uh, there are there are signs of resistance, and in fact, I was very heartened to see just a couple of weeks ago, even on the steps of the Capitol, there were there were a group of congressmen that were talking about pulling out of the WHO altogether. That is the type of rhetoric that we at least need to be starting to hear, and it is good that we are starting to hear it. But I think there needs to be a much more broad, a broad widespread social movement. People have to be aware that this is happening. People have to be aware of the importance of it. People have to be pushing this. Politicians love to get out in front of a parade and pretend that they started it. Um, so if we form the parade, we must exit the WHO. There will be politicians who even just to preserve their own political future will get out in front and start waving that flag. Well, the ideology that surrounds uh, that uh, serves as, as the basis of the seems very deeply inhumane uh, because uh, because James, um, think about that. Uh, we they, they want to centralize power essentially to save us from ourselves. Because if climate change is driven by um, human uh, activity, then you are we are the footprint, uh, the the carbon footprint they are trying trying to reduce. Absolutely, yeah. In it's, fact, it's not it's not just inhumane; it's anti-human. This is a fundamentally anti-human agenda, and it's predicated on the idea that we are essentially useless eaters. All we do is emit carbon, and we are just a, a burden on the planet. And that mindset is is truly what we are facing. And the worst part about that is, of course, I understand why oligarchs who want to rule over the planet would have that mindset and would try to inculcate that. But the fact that the public has swallowed that so much and believe that humans are a cancer on the planet and we are, there are too many people, we have to get rid of a bunch of people. People are starting to adopt that um, to the point where there are, of course, people who are voluntarily, I'm not going to have children, I don't want to be a burden on the planet. Well, of course, that is every individual's um, choice to make. But I would hope that people are making it based on their own, their own understanding of the world and not something that's being foisted upon them by a truly predatory elite, elitist class that want to rule over people and want them to desire their own death. Why people turned out to be so gullible? It's, it's really surprising because in the West, people are usually very intelligent, very educated, and you'd expect them to see, to see them the root cause yeah. and uh, the, the agenda that, that drives it. I think it's on the surface, but apparently it's not. So many people would just believe what they hear on, on the news. 
Unfortunately so, and to be fair, I think there have been hundreds of years of very finely tuned propaganda and psychological experimentation. I think uh, with each iteration of these great catastrophic catalyzing events, um, there is more information that the, the would-be ruling elite have about uh, human nature, human psychology, how people respond to these types of situations, and how they can be manipulated into believing the next one. And so I think the, the machinery of propaganda gets more refined with each iteration. Um, you can look back a hundred years ago, Edward Bernays literally wrote the book on propaganda, uh, talking about the, the, um, the intelligent manipulation of the organized habits of society is uh, the people who do that constitute the real ruling power of this country. Um, that was true a hundred years ago. How much more true is it today? So I don't want to look at the people who have been uh, uh, hit by the baseball bat and crippled, and then laugh at them for being crippled. Um, no, the public has been intellectually crippled and put into this ideological viewpoint where they're desiring their own enslavement. I think it is, it is the job of people who understand this to, to be the light, to show to people, no, we are, the human species is wonderful and dynamic, and we truly can solve our problems. We do not need this predatory, parasitic class on top that are preying upon us to control us, manage us, lock us down, quarantine us, put us into databases, scan us, track us everywhere we go. That is a fundamentally anti-human thing. And I, I think once people understand it in that context, they will resist against it. I think that as long as the human spirit exists, there will be resistance. James, I would like to thank you so much for this important conversation. Please tell us, what is the best way to follow you in your work? Well, I have been censored and scrubbed from a number of platforms, so uh, in the event that that happens with any of the platforms I'm on right now, you can always find me at CorbettReport.com. Thank you so much. Uh, it was James Corbett, everyone. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Veronica Kirilenko of the New American Magazine.